Hello and welcome to The Parents Show on Radio Varalum 92.6 FM. I'm Lydia Elkouri and I'm really delighted to have a fantastic guest joining us on the show this evening. It's Rebecca Jackson, who is the founder and um, CEO, I'm going to call you Rebecca, of RJ Academy at the Performing Arts School. Um, Rebecca, thanks a million for joining us on The Parents Show. Okay. Now, tell us a little bit about yourself. You okay. have a very interesting story for, for all our parents to hear and I, I'm dying to talk to you about yeah. it. So um, I kind of live a, a very busy mum life as, as all mums and, and dads do. Um, I've got a seven-year-old, a six-year-old boy and a four-year-old just turned four boy. And I've also got an 18-year-old stepdaughter, although she kind of keeps herself to herself and sorts herself out now. And we live quite a hectic life. My husband runs his own business. I run my own business. So kind of juggling all plates as all all parents do. And I was just desperate for one more baby. Uh, I really wanted a daughter of my own. Obviously, I've I've got my stepdaughter, but she's got her own mum. And I, I just wanted a daughter of my own to add to the family. So we sort of, myself and my husband were trying for two years. And we kind of thought that if when December came, if nothing had happened at the end of the year, that, that was going to be it. We weren't going to try anymore. And then just like a, a kind of miracle, really, um, I did fall pregnant in December of the year, just gone 20, what year? 2021. So yeah, I was, I was literally over the moon because I did not think it was going to happen. And I was really, really excited to have um, fallen pregnant. And I knew that this was going to be my last baby. I thought, oh, I'm going to just have the most beautiful pregnancy. I'm going to make the most of it and do all the things that I didn't do before. And it's going to be stress-free because I've, I've, I've done it all before and I know what I'm doing. And that was kind of my view of it. And then things started to change when I started to feel very, very poorly, which I'd never, ever had in any of my pregnancies. I was somebody that just worked right up until my due date went back to work six weeks later, never had a day off, just, and I couldn't understand why I was so poorly to the point that I couldn't get off the sofa. I was doing COVID tests like every day. Is it COVID? What's, what's wrong with me? And so I decided to book in for an early scan, which I'd never done before. And um, all the way through, my brother-in-law kept joking, thinking he was funny, saying, oh, you're going to be having twins. That's why you're so unwell. And of course, I was like, no, I'm not going to have twins. There's no twins in the family. And I went along for my uh, my uh, early scan at eight weeks. And there were two sacks and there were two babies. And it was twins. And it was just like something you see in the movie, really, the way it had come about. Because I'd said to the, to the sonographer or the midwife, oh, my brother-in-law keeps saying it's twins. And she was like, oh, that's just an old wives tale that you feel worse with twins. Then she put the, the thing on and, and she just screamed because there it was. It was just so surreal how it all happened. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So that was, that was pretty crazy. And, um, it was really strange because I burst into tears and I was just really, overwhelmed but it wasn't like as selfish as it sounds it wasn't happy tears so obviously some people finding out discovering they were having twins would have been like amazing but um it was just a shock and I sort of left I mean I think I was just sobbing on the bed going what am I going to do I'm gonna have to quit my job and how am I going to cope just in front of the midwife which is really embarrassing 
And when we left the, the scan room, we myself and my husband sat in the car for about an hour, just in, in pure silence. Like so many things were running through our, our minds. A lot to absorb. Yeah. And, you know, there's no twins in either family. So it was just a shock. And then obviously I started telling people like my, my cl- close family, mom, dad and, and brothers and sisters, and everyone was in shock. And um, I just kind of never really been an anxious person, but I just could not control my emotions. And for like the two weeks after finding out, I mean, I was waking up at five in the morning sobbing. I didn't really know why. I just, I, cu- I couldn't get my head around, how am I going to cope with this? How is this going to fit in my life? But but more so, what concerned me was, how am I going to carry twins as far as I can? That was, that was how is my body going to cope with this? Because I'm you know, lockdown, like a lot of us, there was two, I felt there was two people in lockdown, those that got fit and got healthy and those that sat eating biscuits during homeschooling and I was the eating biscuits one. So I thought, you know, I've I've got a bit of weight on me that I shouldn't have. And I'm 35, which isn't old, but it's an older kind of mum in, in, in medical terms, even though I don't think it is. So I just couldn't get my head around how am I going to, how am I going to carry these? And I need to carry them as far as I can because I know lots of people that have had twins early and and things of complications have gone wrong. So that was kind of my initial anxiety. So I booked another scan for just before 12 weeks. And then I had my NHS scan sort of a couple of days after that. So I went for my 12-week scan and everything was fine. So I decided to tell people that I was pregnant, like go public with it, tell all my students at my performing arts school, the parents, because I felt pressure, really, because I felt like I wasn't quite on top of my game because I was ill. And normally I've always waited until that screening test 12 weeks to tell people. And I told everyone and that was a nice, a nice moment. Everyone, you know, was happy and excited, although lots of people were like, oh my gosh, you know. But then two days later, everything like just changed because I went for my screening test and that was where we found out some really kind of shocking and, and sort of scary news really at, at the official screening test, which was the NHS one. And I really appreciate you sharing this with us, Rebecca, and for all your honesty, you know, it must be really hard to talk about it. Yeah, I think um, I think it's it's something that like you, you kind of think, how would I cope in that situation? But until you're in the situation, you, it's yeah, I don't know. So I think um, so when, when we went for that scan, the midwife kept saying to us, are you sure you want to have a screening test? Because with twins, people often don't have their screening test. And the the camera was already like, um, this isn't like the medical terms, but the camera was already on the twins at this point. Yeah. So looking back, because she was saying that the official screening lady wasn't there, which I, I think is more like the counselling lady, she kept going in and out the room and checking that she was okay to do it. So I think looking back, she'd automatically seen something on the screen but it transpired that we were and the scan went on for ages and I just had a feeling something wasn't quite right and at the end it transpired that twin two we were told had a five millimeter nuchal fold fluid which is the fluid that they take on the baby's neck um obviously this I could be saying medically the wrong things here this is just like what I took from it because it was all a bit of a blur sure Um, 
so then I asked straight away, well, what does that mean? And it, I was told it could be a sign of, it could, it could, they kept saying it could be a sign of Down syndrome, Edward syndrome, Patel syndrome, or a heart problem. So obviously that was just devastating, shocking, devastating, absolutely devastating. And obviously I just told everybody that I was having twins, my children, everybody. So lots of people knew that I was having that scan that day. Yeah. And many people perhaps wouldn't know, but because I'd had a scan at 12 weeks, but because that was a private scan, they weren't allowed to do the screening tests. And looking back, she did say to me in that private scan, oh, are you going to have your screening test? So she had obviously seen something but wasn't allowed to say. But I didn't know that at the time. So, of course, I was getting text messages. How's the scan? How's the scan? And I was in the hospital for three hours. We were put into a side room. And thankfully, they let my husband sit with me because obviously partners uh, at our hospital were like, not allowed up until the scan and then they will go back downstairs so then we were in to see the doctor and sort of talk through it all in more detail and I was told to wait for my blood test results because the screening test there's two parts to it so they take well I think there's three parts to it but I know they take the nuchal fold and then they take the bloods and so kind of went away and was kind of in shock but I was holding on to a bit of hope thinking do you know what it's going to be fine because my bloods will come back and they'll be fine and actually they weren't. So it was three days later and I was at work and I got the call and literally my heart sank to my knees when the midwife told me that the twin two, because they call them twin one and twin two. So twin one is nearest, nearest the exit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Twin two had a one. So twin one had a one in something like 18,000 chance of anything like that. So that was like no worries at all. Twin two had a one in less than five chance of having Down syndrome, Edwards or Patel's, which was just devastating to me because obviously I'd already gone away and Googled what Edwards and Patel's were. Down syndrome wasn't really worrying me at that point, but Edwards and Patel's, are so life limiting that the baby would either die, um, you'd miscarry the baby, or you would the baby would die within hours or days of being born. So yeah, I mean, very hard to process that kind of information, yeah. and um, and I think it's important for our listeners to understand, Rebecca, you're you're twenty three year weeks pregnant now, right? Yeah. Yeah, so still in, still kind of in, in the midst of it. But yeah, yeah, it was a lot to process. And it was just like, because I was at work as well. Yeah. I've gone into another room and I just, and I just, my kind of way of dealing with things and all the way through this, really, I've been very much like, it's kind of been when I've been in bed at night on my own that I've like let it all in. Like during the day, I'm just, trying to be mum and trying to work and do all Busy. that yeah and also I don't you know it was a lot for like my immediate family that knew what was going on because you know you're talking about when the actual reality of it hits and obviously myself and my husband had to have conversations that you wouldn't like and that you're exposing yourself to which I think this is one of the reasons you know people don't talk about this because they're ashamed of what they you know what they want to say or how they feel but like, you know, you're sort of talking about if you're potentially bringing a, a disabled child into the world, which obviously if it was Edwards and Patel's, they would, they would die anyway. But there's so many different levels of 
disability, isn't it? And it's just like, it's the sheer kind of like shock of that and kind of getting your head around, okay, this child might be disabled, might have a heart problem, but actually there's one in less than five chance that this child might have Down syndrome, Edwards or Patel's. And it was just a shock. And I think both myself and my husband, our immediate priority were the children that were already hit, like here living on earth. But actually what makes this whole thing more complicated, which I haven't really said, is because it's twins. So anywhere that we went from here, any test that we did, any invasive test that we did from this point onwards would risk both babies, both embryos. Um, so that was another factor that was kind of massive when considering what do we do next from here? Absolutely. One child, it was both. Which is, I mean, an even bigger responsibility. Yeah, it's tough. So yeah, so the next kind of stage from there, we were told we were going over to the fetal medicine unit at, at a different hospital. But because they wanted me to see this specific twin specialist who was actually on annual leave or on holiday or something, it was a 10 day wait for this appointment. And that's when I like I it was probably 10 of the worst days of my life I know that sounds dramatic but I can imagine I had prepared myself for the worst that's how I coped I prepared myself that I was going to go into that appointment and you know the worst was going to be there you know and I'd gone through every scenario in my mind and I wanted to talk about I wanted to know what the worst case was so on the lead up to that appointment it was also the lead up to the busiest week of my, so in my performing arts school, we do a big show every two years and it was that week. <laughs> so it was like, it was something that I had to continue with work. But actually looking back, that's what got me through, I think, having that focus. And just like on the lead up to that appointment, I just, everything was going through my mind, every scenario. So yeah, that was really hard. When we actually got to the appointment as well, there was like a two hour wait and it was boiling hot and we were in masks and I could just, I thought I'm going to, I'm going to have an anxiety attack. Not that I've ever had one, but that's, that's how I felt. But as soon as we got in to our appointment, the team were just outstanding. So I, as I said, I kind of needed to know every worst case scenario. So you know, some of the conversations were horrendous. We were talking about like stillbirth and things like that. But as soon as the midwife told me that there was like a, a full team of, what did she call it, bereavement counsellors that would counsel not just me, but my children, my husband, you know, my, my mom, that sort of filled me with a bit more, like I felt better knowing that, okay, there's a team of people here that can help if it came to that. Because obviously, like I said, I wanted to know the worst case cases and everything and obviously we discussed a lot of things and they were lovely in there because they said we don't judge you we're here to support you in what you want to do and what and you know your feelings so that was that was good now that appointment didn't go I thought it was going to go like as I said it was going to be awful but actually there was no worse news to come out of that appointment it was just the fact that they couldn't see anything more on there fluid was still there and it was still you know what they said but they kind of discussed the options there was two options one was an amniocentesis I can't say it and I just call it an amnio (laughs) there's so many new words that I have learned since being twins like I bet you know, I know all the different names for all the different types of twins and it's mad. Like it's a whole new new world. Yeah, new world. But so there was that. And that was the main 
kind of thing that I was nervous about because that would risk. So what the mid, what the lady said was a, a normal person that had that say it was like a, it would be like three times more the risk with twins of, of miscarriage and they would, they would put the needle into both, both sacks basically. But I felt like myself, I, I, we, so we provisionally booked that appointment, even though I was really worried about it. And um, I just couldn't, couldn't think, well, what happens if the worst happens to both babies and we, we lose them both? And um, yeah, it's a massive I, decision. Yeah. And that was one of the reasons that made me kind of think in that moment, I really want to talk about this when I'm feeling better to do so because yeah. I Googled it and there was lots online, but I thought of all the people I know, and I'm a really open, honest, sociable, I know a lot of different people. I don't know a single person that's had an amnio. There must be more people out there, but obviously people don't talk about it because there is an element of being judged, you know, because probably, I, well, I think I always said before, oh, if I had a screening test and it came back bad, I wouldn't have the next test anyway because it risks a miscarriage. That's what I would say. But now I'm in the position. And, you know, like I said earlier, like my priority was my, my three ch- children, like my, my two young sons and my stepdaughter. And if something was going to be wrong where perhaps the baby would die within hours of being born, I had to be able to prepare my children for that. And also equally, if the baby was going to be born with Down syndrome, I wanted to research and know and as much as I could. So I had to know is what I what I thought. But there was another test called a NIPT test, which I was booked in for first. And that is not conclusive. That's not that's not a diagnostic test, they say. That is a still a screening test, but it's a very good screening test. So I booked in for that, went along for that. And actually on that day, they scanned me again. And I don't think that they weren't supposed to look at the um, nuchal fold, but they did actually tell me that the nuchal fold fluid had gone down. So that was, I suddenly felt a little bit of hope there that like that's gone down. So I had the NIP test and again, agonizing wait for that. And I knew that if that came back high risk, that was it. I was having that amnio test and like a miracle again, it felt like a miracle that came back low risk. So it was just like, I could not believe that that had come back low risk. And from there, we made the decision not to go ahead then with the amnio. And some took, because I'm still having lots of appointments because they're still looking at the heart. They can't get the heart because baby number two is a pain in the bum and won't <laughs> get into the position that they need yeah. to get. So we've had yeah. three separate anomaly tests trying to find this part of the heart that they can't see. Yeah. But every time I go for the appointment, the specialist does remind me that obviously that test that I had was not conclusive. So, you know, there could still be a chance. But I did speak to the midwife just two days ago at the last appointment. And I did say, you know, if it was Edwards and Patel's, would you be able to see it? And she said, if it was Edwards and Patel's, we would. The baby would be covered in fluid and it looked like almost like a halo on top of the baby's head. Down syndrome, she wouldn't always be able to pick that up. There are certain markers. And obviously, we haven't seen any of the markers yet. Otherwise, we would have told you. Yeah. But there's always that worry in the back of my mind, I think. Of course. And I think so much kind of trauma has gone on. I mean, I can't really describe how it felt. So I probably haven't done a very good job of just describing. And I think as in, in a marriage as well, obviously you have different opinions about things. So one example was when the, when we were discussing like, you know, the if the baby had Edwards or Patel's, um, 
you know, lots of lots of people would terminate the baby because the baby could potentially not well would 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 die within hours or days or some people may choose to carry the baby then you might still birth it or you'll have it and then the baby will die after a few days and obviously you've got difference of opinions because one of us would say well actually it's cruel to the child to bring the child into the world if it's just going to suffer for a few hours and then die just because one of us wants to see and hold the baby that's not fair on the baby or then the next day we might change our mind and say well actually it's not fair what to so it's just kind of like you, there's so much going through your mind and the conversations that you're having in the early hours of the morning as a, as a couple yeah um, and you sort of get up the next day and you paint the smile on for the kids and get the kids ready and get them out the door and so it was just a whirlwind, really. From yeah. the moment we found out it was twins, it was just a whirlwind. And conversations you never in a million years thought you'd yeah. be having or decisions or or even, yeah. conver- you know, kind of, yeah. kind of thoughts that you never thought you'd be having. And Rebecca, so you're 23 weeks pregnant yes. and you, you're doing something brilliant you're you're talking about your experience yeah. you're kindly sharing your experience which will be great for anybody who's listening who might be going through have gone through something similar and and can it's so comforting to hear somebody else has gone through something similar but yeah. you're taking it another step I'm, I'm delighted yeah. you're talking to us on the parents <laughs> show but you're taking it a step further which is brilliant tell yeah. us about what you're going to do so um well I've always wanted to do a podcast because I used to be a present TV presenter way back when. I'm very open and honest and um, I enjoy talking passionately about things. So I've always had that in the back of my mind, but never really had something to talk about, something that I thought was worthwhile. And really from the moment I found out it was twins, I felt like there was no, there are a few things out there. There are a few books and things, but compared to singleton pregnancies where there's loads of open and honest and funny and real and raw books and podcasts, I felt like with twins, everything that I Googled really was from a medical point of view. It was, it wasn't, there wasn't that real experience in there. Yeah. And what got me through my whole journey so far has been talking to other twin mums. And there was one girl in particular who like had said to me, I had anxiety so bad that I had to be signed off work through my twin pregnancy and just things that you wouldn't think of or know. And, um, I just thought, you know what? I want to share this. I want to share my experience of my twin pregnancy. I want to share my experience of, you know, all of the complications that I had and what I went through because I'm only 23 weeks. There could be more to this story and the birth is, you know, there's going to be more to the birth. There's going to be more. And I want to share the story, but I also want to hear from other people who have been through similar things. So I am launching the podcast. We're starting recording it next week. I can't say the full title because there is an expletive in there. It's, oh, it's twins is the name (laughs) of the podcast. And I've got some great people lined up to talk. So I've got, you know, we're going to, we're going to, keep it lighthearted in parts. We've got the dads coming on and they'll speak about their experiences. And we're going to have, uh, there's an episode planned on, you know, what to expect, but more in, in like a funny way. And like one of my friends says, when you've got twins and you go out, you can't pop out for 10 minutes because everybody wants to ask you. And they'll all ask you the same questions. Are they identical? <laughs> you know? So, yeah. But then I've got 
some other really like great guests, like a, a couple of mine, of a couple that I know, have agreed to come on, and they actually delivered their twins at twenty three weeks. One is now they're sixteen now. One is fully able, and one is quite badly disabled. So they're going to share their experience of raising identical twins with those different disabilities. I've got um, a lady that reached out to me because she saw what I posted on um, Facebook about my journey. I posted a little bit. I didn't go into too much detail, but she is a singleton parent. She's not had twins, but she's had the amnio and she's had all of the things that I went through. And just hearing from her made me feel like, oh, you know, I'm not alone actually in this journey. So, I mean, I've heard, and so many people have reached out to me, like another lady found out she was having identical twins and, and actually nearly died because she had blood clots. So it sounds like a little bit doom and gloom, but it's then going to follow like the pregnancy journey and the, you know, I'd like to do two seasons almost. So the first one is the pregnancy. The second one will be like the birth and the um, and the first few months, which I'm sure there's going to be some funny tales. I mean, there's already loads of funny tales that I can tell about my pregnancy up to now. But obviously today we've spoke about kind of the, yeah. the more serious things. Side but, of it, of, yeah, of course. So I'm, just, I'm just really looking forward to it because it's going to be, it's going to be great for me to be able to kind of, hear from everybody and, and kind of get my story off my chest almost but it's going to be lovely hopefully if it can just help one person that's going through all the emotions that you go through when you find out you're having twins and also I'm going to touch on a little bit of gender disappointment as well um I wanted desperately wanted daughter found out I was having two boys which I'm absolutely fine with now but on the day I found out I wasn't. So we're just going to touch on all those sorts of things yeah. and, and see where it goes, really. So fantastic. Yeah. And, and and I mean, I think I think you're absolutely right. There's so much of a need for parents to hear other parents' experiences yeah. and to share because we, we need to know we're not imagining things are, are all going a bit crazy. Yeah. So the name of the podcast is Oh Beep. It's twins. <laughs> twins yeah. um, where can everybody listen to it and from when? Yeah, so it's going to be on all of the normal sources, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and we're starting recording it next week. So I'm hoping that it will be going live. I'm hoping sort of the first couple of weeks in May. So what I'm going to do is record three episodes back to back first, release those, and then release one episode a week for 10 weeks. So I'll do like a 10 and then we'll have a break and then I'll come back after the babies are born and do a t do 10 more. But obviously, again, like I said, we don't know where the pregnancy is going to take me. So there could be more things that come out um, to be discussed as well. So yeah, so I haven't got like an official launch date just yet because I'm new to the podcasting world. So I've had to do a lot of research on um, how to put it all together. But yeah, the first episode is being recorded on Wednesday next week. So I'm hoping that kind of two weeks after that, I can just launch the first three. So, but you can find out more about it on my Instagram page, which is one.big.juggling.act. <laughs> Brilliant. And we'll, we'll put that on our Facebook page as well. I'm going to go straight to Instagram and follow you, Rebecca, because you know, you're you're doing a great thing for us, for parenting, for us to hear your story, for being so brave, for being so honest, because as you've seen, not everybody is. Yeah. So we, I wish you only the Thank best you. with Thank your you. pregnancy. And I think the hardest part of being a parent is feeling alone. So I think it's just so 
important to just remember that anything you're feeling as a parent, somebody else or probably everyone else is feeling it too, but they might not be confident to say it, but everyone feels the same. I, I think so. Fantastic. <laughs> lovely. <laughs> lovely. For having me. Thanks for coming on, Rebecca. It's been an absolute pleasure and all the very best. Thank you. Hello and welcome to The Parents Show on Radio Verulam 92.6 FM. I'm Lydia El Khoury. And on tonight's show, I'm really pleased to be joined by Nicola McKinnon, who is Community Fundraising Officer with Hearts Young Homeless, a fantastic local charity that's doing brilliant work for our local community. So we'll be speaking to Nicola in just a second. Hi, Nicola. Welcome to The Parents Show on Radio Verulam. Hi, Lydia. Nice to be here. So uh, thanks a million for joining us on the Parents Show this evening, Nicola. We're delighted. And you are the Community Fundraising Officer at Hearts Young Homeless. That's right, yes. So tell us a little bit for our listeners who haven't heard of Hearts Young Homeless, what exactly you do. So Hearts Young Homeless was set up in 1998 and we help young people to secure and maintain appropriate accommodation across Hertfordshire. So we provide information, we provide support and we provide help in a crisis. We work in partnership with other agencies across the county and our main aim is to ensure that young people have somewhere safe, secure and permanent to live. Such a fantastic charity and and what valuable work you're doing. I'd I'd love to know, how are things going at the moment? How is Hearts Young Homeless doing? Yeah, things are good. We have a fantastic team. They work really hard to ensure that all of our service users have got access to all the help that they need. They focus on three main areas. Um, We look at prevention and early intervention. We look at crisis intervention and we look at independent living support. But the need is great at the moment and the pandemic's made things much more complicated for a lot of young people. So we were speaking to um, Hearts Young Homeless um, last year and we know that the pandemic made things very challenging. So is it the case that it's still making things challenging or things getting easier in any respect? There are some things that are getting easier. Um, Obviously, the pandemic had a massive impact on our fundraising. All face-to-face fundraising stopped for a while. That side of things, we're starting to get back to normal. We've got lots of exciting things coming up, which um, I will share with you shortly. But with regards to our service users, no, I don't think things are necessarily getting any easier. They're, they're, They're different. You know, as... As things start to relax and open up again, the need for our services is starting to increase because those things that have been hidden and have been behind closed doors for the last two years, they're all starting to come to the surface. And a lot of those are um, affect our young people in Hertfordshire. Could you give us any examples of the kind of things that you're seeing to increase homelessness or, or the need for your services? Yeah, I mean, one of the um, one of the things that we do is we we have a um, a, a team uh, a mediation team, and their role is to get together with young people and their parents or or carers, and try and help them to learn to resolve their differences. Last year, 92% of the people who were in our mediation service, who went through the, um, who went through the program, 92% of the young people that we, we worked with either didn't ever leave home or returned back to the family home. 
So from a prevention point of view, it's a really great statistic and they're an amazing team that work really, really hard with young people. And a lot of those skills that they give both the adults and the young people will last a lifetime and last in all sorts of um, of situations outside of their, their family environment as well. But of course, as we all know, when we've all been locked in the same house with the same people, it's been difficult even for those families that get on really brilliantly at the best of times. For those where there are more difficult, more challenging circumstances, that need for mediation is going to really start to increase as um, as, as a lot of those tensions have um, have been caused because of the lockdown. I bet a lot of our parents didn't know that you provided that kind of service. I mean, and and I mean, how how amazing is that? I mean, it really is. We we have some incredible success stories um, that sound really simple when you read them on paper. You know, a family where both the adult and the young person really thought that the other person was at fault, didn't want to spend time with them, really did want to spend time together. Um, the, you know, the young person thought the adult was pushing them out. The adult thought the young person was pushing them out. And they just didn't have the skills to sit down and be able to have those conversations. And so our mediators come in and they work really, really closely with both parties. And effectively, what happens more often than not is that you find a resolution through those things. But if people don't know how to do that, it really isn't simple. It really isn't straightforward. And and more often than not, just escalates further and further until the point that the young person feels that they're not welcome to stay at home or that the adult in question feels that the young person probably needs to go and live somewhere else. So yeah, mediation is a really, really key part of our prevention services. And also, I'd imagine that those kind of conflict resolution or reconciliation techniques that they're taught help those young people in their wider lives as well, in their working lives, in their in their relationships outside the family. That's exactly it. So you're not just helping them with the immediate crisis. You are hopefully helping them with a long-term change. That means that any risk of homelessness or other life, uh, life event that, that comes from left of field, they've got skills and they know how to work with those and um, and hopefully resolve the situation. Yeah. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So we met, we just touched briefly on fundraising and you are yeah. indeed the community fundraising officer. So no, no small task there. How, no. how are things going? Yeah, they're good. Um, I joined the charity in November, um, end of November, start of the Christmas period. So probably about the busiest time for any community fundraiser to be getting involved with the charity. And actually, do you know, it's been really great. The one thing that I would say is that we are a charity that people, they do seem to understand, even if they've not heard of us before, they very quickly understand what it is that we do. And there's a there's a real warmth uh, towards the charity out there in Hertfordshire. So we're really fortunate. We've got some really great supporters. But we need to raise £420,000 this year 
to provide all of those services that we that we offer to young people across Hertfordshire. And I'm always looking for new partners that will help us raise that money for schools, for uniformed groups, for rotary clubs, or just for individuals that want to get together and, and organise an event for us. So yeah, it's a, um, you know, how long is a piece of string when it comes to community fundraising? Hertfordshire is a big county. So um, I'm doing my best to get round it, but I'm always happy to hear from people. Brilliant. And that is a considerable sum of money that you yeah. you need to raise. So <laughs> yeah. so you you have your work cut out for you. But yeah. But it's it's such a worthwhile charity. I don't I don't think anybody can fault what you're doing or or really not want to support it and particularly when so much of, of of what you do is prevention and I think probably our parents are certainly I wasn't but I'm sure our parents listening aren't aware of how much and the level of prevention work that you do because obviously that's the best possible solution rather than having young people on 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 the streets. It absolutely is. I mean, we have an education team who aim to go out to every secondary school in Hertfordshire. And part of what they're doing is spreading the word about who we are and what we do. But they're also aiming to work with young people and make sure that they understand things like budgeting and independent living skills and conflict resolution. So yeah, there's a huge, huge amount that goes into the prevention of homelessness. Because let's face it, I think sometimes people want to know how many people we've got off the streets and into accommodation. And the truth of it is that that's that's just the tip of the iceberg. Rough sleeping is a very, very small percentage of what we classify as homelessness in this country. And what we want to do as a charity is prevent anybody from ever getting to that point. We don't want them sleeping on the streets. We don't want them sofa surfing from one friend's house to another. We want them to be somewhere. We want them to be where every young person is supposed to be. We want them to be in a safe home environment because that's the bedrock that forms the whole of the basis of the rest of their lives. That's what allows them to stay in education. It's what hopefully allows them to go and find work and then live independently themselves. So yeah, the prevention part of what we do as a charity is huge it just so so such a laudable initiative and I'd like to know about the upcoming initiatives Nicola so what have you got in the pipeline obviously you've got a huge amount of money to raise you're looking you're always looking for local partners so any parents who are listening in who know of potential sources of funding should definitely reach out but also us as parents as individuals what can we do to support your work Great. Well, we have our very first face-to-face quiz happening since pre-pandemic on the 5th of May. We are using Loretto in St Albans and we're very grateful to them for loaning us the um, the space of their school hall. Um, we've still got tickets available for that. So um, you'll find the details on our website. So that's really exciting. But the Currently, the um, probably the biggest exciting new initiative that I'm working on is that I'm working in partnership with the new St Albans Visual Arts Festival, which is coming up in a couple of weeks' time. And we're working in partnership with them on an event that's happening at the Trestle Art Space, which is an art exhibition. And all of the art that is going to be exhibited at the exhibition on the Sunday has been given to us by local artists and students. 
and the proceeds from the from the sale of those um, those pieces of art is coming to us as a charity. So we're really looking for people to come along to the trestle, eleven till one on the first of May. Ideally, with you know an eye on potentially buying yourself something new to hang on your wall at home. We have an online catalogue of all the pieces that we've had donated so far. And if we've got any local artists or students, years 10 to 13 is the is, is what we're ring-fencing the students to. Although the information on our website says that the deadline for entries is closed as of the 15th of April, we are still accepting submissions. So if anybody would like to donate a piece of artwork to us, again, all the details are on the website and we'd love to hear from you. What a brilliant idea. <laughs> it's absolutely fantastic. You're pulling the community and getting people to donate and all the proceeds to HYH. That's great. Yeah, it's something that we've never tried before. And actually, I've worked for a couple of other charities and community and I've never done anything like this before either. So we're really grateful to um, it's um, the the whole festival itself is being spearheaded by the Collective Gallery in St Albans and they approached us. So we're again, you know, it's just community in action that somebody has has reached out to us and then I pull a few bits and pieces together here and lots and lots of people very generously donate the, the stuff that they've created and hopefully we raise some money from it. Brilliant. So any parents listening in, if you've got a child in year 10 to 13 who's a budding artist, this is a great opportunity to showcase your child's work and to uh, raise money for HYH at the same time. And to raise some money. Yeah, the, um, the, the student pieces of art are, um, it's a competition. And we've had a really brilliant uh, prize of a, a workshop in London. So a, a painting workshop with, a, with an artist as a prize. So yeah, there'll be a prize for the 10 to year 10 to 11 and a prize for the year 12 to 13. So yeah, it would be great to have some students involved. Fantastic. And we've, I'm sure we've got plenty of budding artists in our amazing <laughs> schools in Harpenden and St. Albans. So hopefully you'll be I awash so. with entries. Fabulous. Yeah, so I hope so. So lots of lovely ideas of, of things that we can support. So now if parents want to keep track of what HYH is doing and, and support you beyond the 1st of May at the Arts, Art Exhibition, how do they get in touch? There are a couple of ways to get in touch. Probably the easiest thing to do is to follow us on social media. All of the links to social media are on our website. So if you follow us there, it's a really, really great way to support us, to repost things that you see, to share stuff, because it just gets the word out both about the fundraising and about the charity. You can sign up to a regular newsletter on our website. Again, go straight to the website. The details are all there. But what's really, really important is that if you follow us and that and you can share stuff, it just really, really helps because in sharing it, you never know when a young person might see the information that is being reposted from other people's social media and when they might benefit from it. So, yeah, as much as I what I really want is for you all to come and take part in every fundraising event that I organise. Really, the most important thing is that you're sharing the work that we're doing, because there will be young people out there who will see it and and will need it. And that's really great. 
And that kind of amplification can make the world of difference, can't it? It can. Uh, we don't. We can never underestimate the. Um, we do know that we get service users who remember us from an education visit that potentially happened in year eight. And that something then happens as they get to that sort of top end of secondary school, that that slightly older, we, you know, we, those of us who are, who are parents do know our teenagers are not the easiest at sort of 15, 16. They're, they're trying to find their way in the world. And the number of 15, 16 year olds who remember that they heard about us when they were in year eight or nine and go looking for our telephone number and come to us for help that way. So yeah, it's um, that awareness that we're here, that awareness of what we do, it's absolutely key to, um, to reaching those young people who need us. Great. So the website is www.hyh.org.uk for anybody who doesn't find it through, through a, a search engine search. And follow all the social media contacts, amplify to your heart's content, and um, hopefully that'll support the great work you do, Nicola. That would be absolutely amazing. And, um, and yeah, get in touch about the, um, about the art exhibition or any other ideas. If somebody has something that they are desperate to do as a fundraiser, my, my job ultimately is to support those people in the community who want to do something to raise money for us and make sure that you, um, you have all the support that you need to do it. So, yeah, I'd love to hear from you. Brilliant. Nicola McKinnon from Hearts Young Homeless. Thanks a million for joining us on The Parents oh. Show. Thanks, Lydia.